Good morning. How many of you are, were here in the last seminar? Just raise your hand real quick if you're here for the last seminar. Okay, good. Um, my name is Angelo Grasso. Hi. And I am an instructor at Atlantic Union College in Massachusetts. And I want to thank you all for being here. It's a privilege to share God's word with you. Today we're going to continue our talk about spiritual growth during this seminar. So before we begin, let's just bow our heads for a word of prayer. Precious Father in heaven, this morning, Lord, as we open your word, and Father, as we read a story that may feel familiar, I pray that you will open our eyes again, that your spirit will be our teacher, and that we will receive your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, so we covered a lot last, um, I mean an hour ago, over the principles of discipleship. And we started off by listing the three aspects that Je- of the call that Jesus makes to each one of us as his followers. We read in Matthew chapter 4, 18 through 20, how Jesus came to, his, to, to these men. They were casting their nets into the sea when he came to them. Now, those of you who were here, let's test out your knowledge, your memory. What did those nets represent to those men ultimately? Their identity, very good. And so Jesus came and his call was, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And in that call, Jesus wanted to what? Redefine their identity. So the call of discipleship is a call to the redefinition of our identity. No longer will we identify ourselves in what we do. No longer will we identify ourselves in where we're from, who our parents are or what our culture is, but when we accept the call to discipleship, we find our identity ultimately in Jesus. It doesn't mean we stop being from where we're from. It doesn't mean we stop having the parents who we have. It doesn't mean that we stop being Puerto Rican or Asian or Dominican or American. It just means that we become those things for Christ. So we talked about the three aspects of the call. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What is the first aspect of the call? Follow me. That is the call of the Savior. That's right. So these men were casting their nets into the sea and Jesus came to them and he offers them another option. He says, no longer do you have to toil at your nets. No longer do you have to try and find your identity in what you do or where you're from. But I am giving you another option. And that option is, I want you to find your identity in me. The call of the Savior. And then Jesus says unto them, after he says, follow me, he says, and I will make you. And that is the call of the sanctifier. In other words, when we choose to say yes to the call to discipleship, Jesus promises that he will do a work in our hearts that will change us from what we were to what he wants us to be. The call of the sanctifier. Jesus says, if you will just take this one principle and make it supreme, follow me. I will do a work in you. I will change you. I will make you the call of the sanctifier. And then finally, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's the call of the sender. Jesus does not save us just for ourselves. Ultimately, he saves us so that we can save others. We read how in the, Christ, in the book Christ's Object Lessons, in the parable of the sower, how Jesus wants to reproduce his character to, in us in such a manner that when other people see us, they will be hearing the call of Jesus as it, as it is in Christ. That made no sense. Anyway. We went through the parable of the sower. All right? And in the parable of the sower... I, we really don't have time to overview everything, but basically what we, what we talked about was that the heart of discipleship is competence. And we agreed that competence is not only the knowledge of how to do something, but the ability to do it well. Okay, so competence is not, is not only the knowledge of how to do something, but it's the ability to do it well. And we talked about how, for example, at Atlantic Union College, we have a nursing program, and for all the nurses, you have to go through clinical rotations. And those clinical rotations are basically where you have to go into the hospital and act like a nurse. You have to do the things that a nurse does. And so it's not enough for nursing majors just to be able to explain how to draw blood. 
they have to actually be able to draw blood. That is competence. And we talked about how, you know, I was a theology major in college, and I wish that we could have the same kind of clinicals for future pastors. Because a lot of times we theology majors, we pastors, we like, we really know how to talk about how to get stuff done. But a lot of times we don't really know how to do it. We talked about how competence, the lack of competence in our church, is the cause for many of our woes as a church. We talked about how the reason so many young people are leaving the church is because they don't believe Christianity works. And the reason they don't believe Christianity works is because they don't see Christianity working in the lives of their teachers and their parents and those who profess godliness. The results of incompetence have been devastating to our church. Spiritual competence is the heart of discipleship. Not only being able to talk the talk, but ultimately coming to the point where we can walk the walk of following Jesus. So we talked about the core competencies of a disciple for Christ. We went through the parable of the sower, and how when Jesus talked about the parable of the sower, he basically painted us a picture of a sower who went forth to sow. And there was different kinds of grounds that it landed on. We can't get into the grounds because we're going to get into our next lesson. But basically the principle of the plant is this. Every plant, there's three aspects to it. I know you're enjoying that drawing. We have the roots, which represent the private life. We have the plant which represents the public walk. And we have the fruit which represents the potential for what? The potential for proliferation, which is just a fancy word for multiplication. So these are the core competencies of a disciple for Christ. The roots represent the private life because where do roots grow? Under the ground, where you can't see them. We talked about how roots provide two fundamental things for the plant. What are those two things? Nurture and stability. Nourishment and stability. And so our private life will determine the survival of our public walk. We talked about how there was a certain soil that had rocks in it. And those rocks, what those rocks did was they prevented the roots from taking root. They prevented them from going down deep. They prevented them from gaining nourishment. But that plant, it sprung up quickly. And it looked like a healthy plant. But in the parable, it talked about how when the sun came, the plant withered away because it had no root. And so we talked about how the rocks represent cherished sin in our private life. Each one of us has a public walk and a private life. Each one of us has the face that we present to others and the person who we really are when nobody's watching. And we talked about how cherished sin destroys our relationship with Jesus. Okay? And then we talked about how the roots cause the growth of the plant. Are just real quick, another thing on the rocks. We, d- we concluded from the parable that we read of the sower that the seed represents what? The Word of God. That's right. And the soil represents what? Our hearts. That's right. The soil represents our hearts. And so we decided that because we are soil, that's the first, first lesson for your disciples, you are dirt. Okay? That's the first lesson for you. You are dirt. Jesus said it. He said, you are, your heart is the soil, and the, and the seed comes to the soil. Now, because the soil is rocky, what power does the soil have to remove the rocks from within it? Absolutely no power. Whose work is it to remove the rocks? It is the work of the farmer. It is the work of Jesus Christ. And so the, the process of competence in, competence in our life is the process by which we create an environment of surrender, in our hearts that allows Jesus to come and pull the rocks and gently pull the weeds from our lives. Discipleship is creating an environment in our hearts of surrender every day that allows Jesus to pull the rocks and pull the weeds. 
the difference between regular dirt and us as dirt is that God has given dirt the power of choice. And it is our choice every day that determines how fully God can do His work in us. We talked about the potential for proliferation. In the parable, the one thing that the sower or the farmer is looking for is more of that which was sown. And so when we truly allow our lives to to be surrendered to God and we allow Him to do the work of growing us up in in a relationship with Him, we will ultimately bear fruit. And that fruit is the reflection of Christ's character in our hearts. That fruit is the reflection of Christ's character. And as we reflect the character of Christ, you know what's inside of each fruit? A seed. And the lives that we live in reflection of Christ's character sow seeds in the hearts of others and cause them to experience new life in Christ. Ultimately, what the farmer is looking for is more of that which was sown. I will make you fishers of men. You were born for a reason. You were born for a purpose. Have you ever wondered why am I alive? According to Jesus, you are alive to bring him glory. What is the purpose of a garden? Has anyone here ever planted a garden? Raise your hand if you've ever planted a garden. Okay, now what kind of... Do you ever plant stuff in the garden that you don't want to eat? No, you want to plant stuff in the garden that you like to look at, that you like to smell, and that you like to eat. The purpose of a garden is for the pleasure and joy of the gardener. And ultimately, the purpose of our relationship with Christ is for His pleasure and His joy. When we make it our goal to live a life that reflects Christ's character so that we can make Him happy, so that we can bring Him joy, so that we can bring others into His kingdom, which will even make Him more joyful, that is when we will experience the true meaning of discipleship. And we talked about a bunch of more stuff, but I don't want to bore the people who are here already. So we're going to get into our next lesson. And this is another aspect of the disciples' journey. We talked about the call. Okay, the first aspect of the disciples' journey is the call, where Jesus comes and, t- and comes to us where we are, and He gives us another option. When we receive the call, Jesus wants to make us competent. And that's where the part where he says, and I will make you fishes of men. But Jesus also wants us to enter into community. And community is a vital aspect of the disciples' journey. And a community is also a vital aspect of spiritual growth. Now we're going to talk a little bit about our condition as a community of believers. And if you can turn to the wounded healer, it's probably the, it's the fourth page in your handout. <clears throat> The wounded healer. And just to do a quick overview of um, Genesis chapter 3. Let's just talk about Genesis chapter 3 real quick just to lay a foundation for what's going on. It's not in there, but let's just talk about it. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve were in the garden. Everything was, was great. The serpent came, deceived Eve. She took of the fruit. She gave it to Adam. He also partook of the fruit. Sin entered the world. Let's talk about what were the immediate consequences of sin. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. And what happens immediately? What did they realize? They realized that they were naked. So one of the first relationships that sin destroys is our relationship with ourself. So basically, sin is in the business, the devil is in the business of destroying relationships. Okay? And the first relationship that sin destroyed, well, not the first, but... One of the relationships that sin destroys is our relationship with ourselves. They felt shame. They saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. Okay? So, then what happened? God pursued Adam and Eve. Now, from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, it can be summed up in one phrase. The theme of God's word is this. God pursues His people. That's the theme of the gospel, is God pursues His people. 
Jesus always takes the first step. Jesus is coming after you. He's seeking you out. He wants to restore a relationship with you. So, what happens when Jesus comes and he's like, where are you guys? What did they do? They hid. So the second relationship that sin destroys is our relationship with God. And these aren't like in chronological order, but it is one of the relationships that sin destroys is our relationship with God. They ran away from God. When God confronts them, what, what does he confronts Adam and he's like, why did you eat of the fruit of the tree that I told you not to eat of? And what does he say? The woman that you gave me. So the third relationship that sin destroys is our relationship with others. Sin destroys our relationship with God. It destroys our relationship with ourself. And it destroys our relationship with others. It destroys our relationship with God because God who only wants to pursue us and love us and bestow His grace upon us, this God who is love, we want to run away from Him because of sin. Sin destroys our relationship with self because even after we ask God for forgiveness, sometimes the hardest person to find forgiveness from is ourselves. And ultimately, it destroys our relationship with others. Every relationship that we have here on earth is a microcosm of the kind of relationship that A, God wants to have with us, and B, that God has with himself in the Trinity. And so the devil wants to destroy relationships so that, we can, so that he can further mar our picture of the character of God. Every relationship we have on earth, whether it's a friendship relationship, a marriage relationship, a family relationship, in one way or another reveals an aspect of the character of God. And the devil wants to destroy those relationships so that we can forget about the picture of God that he's painted for us. So if sin destroys these relationships, what then is the purpose of redemption or restoration? The purpose of redemption is to restore each and, other, each and every one of these relationships to God's ideal. The purpose and the work of sanctification, the purpose and the work of restoration is the work of restoring relationships. God wants to restore our relationship with Him. He wants to restore our relationship with ourselves. And He wants to restore our relationship with our family and our friends and our loved ones. And this parable speaks to that. Now, how many of you have read the parable of the Good Samaritan before? How many of you have heard the, good, the parable of the Good Samaritan so many times that you can't even count how many times you've heard the story of the Good Samaritan? How many of you know what the Good Samaritan story is about? Okay, good. You're wrong. No. You're not wrong. But... There is an aspect of the parable of the Good Samaritan that we overlook because we go immediately to the, to the pat or the common interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And what is the common interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan? What is it? Right. Be good to other people, right? Do good things for strangers. Be a Good Samaritan. Be good to strangers. Help other people who need your help. Okay, forget that for now. Let's just start with a clean slate. Let's read the Word of God and see what it says. Let's bow our heads one more time. Father in heaven, as we open your Word now, we pray for your divine understanding. In the name of Jesus, amen. Turn to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through Luke chapter 10, verse 25 says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. 
And he said to him, You have answered rightly, do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Let's just break down this text inductively. Question one is, why did the expert in the law stand up to ask Jesus a question? According to to verse 25, why did he ask Jesus a question? To test him, right? In uh, some other version of King James, I think it says to tempt him. So he stood up to test Jesus. Question two is, what is the question that this lawyer asks Jesus? What shall I do or what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is wrong with that question? Is there something odd about the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay. How do you inherit something? It's passed down to you and what causes it to be passed down to you? Because someone else who you are related to is passing it down to you. In other words, an inheritance is passed down through family lines. So the lawyer says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's odd about that question is, there's nothing you can do to inherit eternal life, because eternal life is not about what you do. It's about who you are. I will inherit my family's estate because I am a son. Discipleship is not about what you do or don't do. Discipleship is about who you are. The theme of this GYC is be. It's not about what you do or don't do. It's about who you are. This is the driving point of a disciple's journey. We must always remind ourselves that my identity is not in my activity. My identity is not in the group that I run with. My identity is in the fact that I am a son and daughter of Jesus Christ because he has adopted me into his family. And it is because of that adoption, because I can call him Abba, Daddy, that when he comes again, I can inherit eternal life. And so here this guy, he, he, this lawyer, he has it mixed up because he's asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus doesn't address this. He, doesn't, he, he basically says to him, where does Jesus point him to, for the answer of his question? What does he say? What is written in the law? How do you read it? Okay, so Jesus just turns the question back on him and says, what, how do you read it? What is written in the law? And so then the lawyer turns back and says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and on your mind and on your soul and love your neighbor as yourself. And then how does Jesus respond to his response? What does Jesus say to him? He says, Good answer. Thank you for playing. Have a nice day. That's it. Jesus says, just, That's all he says is, Good answer. You have answered correctly. And yet, how does the man respond to Jesus' affirmation of his, of his formula? Who is my neighbor? And why does he ask that question? What does the Bible say? Seeking to justify himself, he asks, who is my neighbor? Now, why do people generally try and justify themselves? Under what conditions do we try and justify ourselves? When we're wrong or when we're accused? Now, did Jesus accuse this man of anything? No. All Jesus said was good answer. But his own life accused him that he wasn't even living up to the standard that he had set for salvation. And that's why seeking to justify himself, the man knew in his heart that he wasn't living up to the standard. And so seeking to justify himself, he asked the question, who is my neighbor? In other words, if... It's about loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as, my, as yourself. What are the min, who are the minimum amount of people that I have to love in order to get to heaven? Because if anyone is outside of this inner circle of neighbor, I don't want to love them. Because that, I don't, I mean, I, I'm trying to get to heaven and that's it. I'm just trying to do the bare minimum to get there. So who is my neighbor? You know, draw the line for me so that I can know what to do and what not to do. Have you ever like asked that of God? Just like, what, where's the line? You know? 
What, what, just tell me. Just give me a list of do's and don'ts so that I can just know when I'm in and when I'm out. So that's what this guy is asking. He's like, who is my neighbor? What is the least that I have to do to get to heaven? And so in order to answer the question of who is my neighbor, Jesus tells him the story. Let's turn to Luke chapter 10, verses 35, 30 through 35. And we'll start with verse 30. And it says, Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half naked, I mean half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever you spend when I come again, I will repay you. Let's just break that down. You've heard it before. Let's just break it down. Let's start by making three, four lists. So I want you to find a blank piece in your page, and I want you to make four, we're going to make four lists. The first list that we're going to make is we're going to list the characters in this story. Okay? So first thing, we're going to list the characters. I'm a poor speller. Okay, so let's just go down the story. Jesus starts and says, now a certain... Man, okay, so we have a man. Who's next? Before the priest? The robbers. Okay, so we have the robbers. Then we have the priest and the Levite. Who else? Samaritan. Next character. Okay, we have innkeeper. And finally, we have the, the donkey, right? Okay, so we have the donkey. The donkey is also a character. Okay, so these are the characters in the story. Okay, now the robbers came, and they, they jumped this guy. What is a robber? A thief, right? Someone who takes something that doesn't belong to them. Someone who takes something that doesn't belong to them. So let's just go down and talk about the robber. The robbers. Let's just list some characteristics of robbers. What are some what are some things that we can assume about robbers? Selfish. What else? Aggressive. What else? Dishonest. Now how did they treat him? They were violent, right? So violent. Anything else about um, we can assume about the character of a robber? What's that? Manipulate. Okay, that's very good. Manipulative. Okay, so we'll stop there, but obviously there's more things that we can talk about. Have you ever been robbed? Has anyone ever been robbed? How does it feel? feels terrible, right? Um, now it says there, have you ever been a robber? But we won't ask you to raise your hands for that one. Now let's make our third list. And this is from the Bible. Let's look in the, in the Bible and let us make a list of the description that the Bible gives us of the condition of the man after he's beaten up and taken away. I mean, and left, left there. So what does the Bible say? How did they leave him? Naked. What else? Wounded. What else? Half dead. What else? What did they take from him? Everything, right? So he was poor. Helpless. 
and we'll just throw in alone. Okay? So that's the condition. They left him in all, in, in all those states. Now we know, obviously, that the priest came and he passed by on the other side. We know that the Levi came and he passed by on the other side. And we could get into a study of you know, why they may have justified themselves. In the book of Leviticus, there's a law that says the priests and the Levites cannot defile themselves by the touching of dead bodies unless they're family. But what was wrong with their response to this man? He was half dead. So often in our attempt to obey God, we deal with the wrong half of people. So they didn't even probably stop and consider the condition. They just assumed he's dead or dying, and what if he dies while I'm like trying to take him somewhere? Then I'm going to get defiled. Then I'm going to you know, have to go through all this ritual, and God doesn't want me to do that. I'm trying to go to church. I'm trying to go preach my sermon. So I'm just going to leave, leave him be. Let someone else deal with him. What do we know about Samaritans? They were what? They were not well loved by Jews. They were despised by Jews. They were false worshippers. They were heathen mixed with Jews. So they, they, were like a, they were like a mix of the heathen and the Jewish culture. Their worship style was similar to the Jewish worship style and that made them extra despicable to the Jews. When the man in the, in the book Christ Object Lessons, when the lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, he didn't even consider the Samaritans. Well, he was talking about who among these Jews are my neighbor. Not who, not who, not, he didn't even consider that, that maybe someone outside of the Jewish community would be considered the neighbor. Because even within the Jewish community, there were different levels of society. You know, there, was, there were the poor and, and there was just a case system. And so he said, who among these Jews are my neighbor? That's how much they despised the Samaritans. They were half-breeds. Now let's make our final list. Let's list the actions taken by the Samaritan. Look at the, look at the, um, the actual text. And according to the text, what are the specific actions taken by the Samaritan? Before he had compassion, what did he have to do? Okay, first thing it says is, he came where he was. We've learned that in the journey of a disciple, who takes the first step? Jesus. So the first thing he did is, he came to him. He came where he was. He came. What's the second thing he did? He saw him. Okay, and then what? He had compassion. And then what? He bandaged his wounds. And did what? Poured in oil, oil and wine. And then what did he do? Put him on the donkey. And then what did he do? Took him to the inn. And then what did he do? took care of him. How long did he take care of him? What does the Bible say? All night long. Because it said the next day. Okay, so all night care. All night care. And then the next day, he, he paid. And what two promises did he make to the innkeeper? What was the first promise he made to him? I will return and I will repay. So the two promises he makes to the innkeeper is I will return and I will repay. Do me a favor. Look at the list of the actions taken by the Samaritan. Who is Jesus describing? Himself. Jesus describes himself as the Good Samaritan. We need to understand something. If the point of this parable was that we should help people, that we should help people on the side of the road who need help, 
who would be doing these actions? The Jew. The man would be doing these actions. And who would be the guy beat up on the side of the road? The Samaritan. If what Jesus was trying to teach us was that you should be nice to Samaritans, the Samaritan would be on the side of the road and the Jew would be the one going to help him. But the Jew, Jesus places the Jew as which character in the story? As this guy. Naked, wounded, half dead, poor, helpless, alone, miserable. He places him in the position of the beat up man. Why? Why does Jesus flip the script on this man? Let's talk about it. Verse 36 through 37, it says, Jesus said unto him, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Question one, what was the lawyer's question in verse 29? What was the lawyer's initial question in verse 29? Who is my neighbor? Okay. And what was Jesus' question in verse 36? Which of these three was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? So how does Jesus' question in verse 36 differ from the lawyer's question? This is how it differs. The lawyer asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Who among these people should I be nice to? Who should I be good to? Who should I be kind to? And this is, the que- this is how Jesus asked the question. Uh, who is my neighbor? Who will come and help me? Jesus completely flips the script on this man. The point of this story is that you and I are the man on the road. The point of this story is that you and I are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And we are beat up so bad that we're unconscious to our own condition. The point of the story is that we need a savior. The point of the story is that Jesus took a journey a long way from home and he came to where we were and he saw our condition and he had compassion. The point of this story is that Jesus picks us up. He bandages our wounds. He takes us to a safe place of healing and he takes care of us all night long. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. That's the point of the story. Let's go on. So the neighbor is Jesus. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. Question four, we we went through that. Okay, we went through that. Let us go to... um, Question number seven. And that's for you personally, is what do you hear Jesus saying to you in this story? What do you hear Jesus saying to you in this story? The church of Laodicea is is in the condition of this man. The church in Revelation 3 is in the condition of this man. And Jesus is offering himself to our church, to us as a people. He's offering himself to us as a savior. Now, We can either be here, we can also be robbers. We can also, as Christians, be the ones who cause damage to the lives of young, either people who are trying to walk the way. We can at times be selfish, aggressive, dishonest, violent, and manipulative. Can we not? There is a principle, and it is this. If you are not a wounded healer, you will become an unhealed wounder. If you are not a wounded healer, you will become an unhealed wounder. Now let's just talk about the specifics of what this man did and who helped him on this journey. There in the section that says apprenticeship in community. Time. 
I have 15 minutes. Okay, let's go to apprenticeship in community. Question one is, what was the mission of the Samaritan once he found the man on the road? So the Samaritan found the man on the road, and what was his primary mission? What do you all, from, from what you saw, the actions that he took? Restoration. That's right. The primary mission of the man was to heal him, was to bring him back to health. Okay, that's the primary mission of the Savior, is to restore us back to the ideal. Okay, question two is, who helped the Samaritan accomplish this mission, and what were their roles? So, who's, what was the first character that helped the Samaritan accomplish the mission? The donkey, okay? And what did the donkey do? He carried the man from the place of danger to the place of safety, okay? So, who was the second character who helped the Samaritan accomplish his mission? The innkeeper. And what did the innkeeper do? He continued the process of healing, Okay, so the Samaritan came, he took care of him all night, late, all night long, and then the Samaritan had to go. And so he said to the innkeeper, listen, I want you to do to this man what I would do if I were here. I want you to care for him in my stead. I want you to represent me. I want you to facilitate the healing process in his life. I want you to continue to provide an environment by which the healing process can take place. So then, the question is, what does the inn represent, A, in the story, and B, to us? So, what does the inn represent in the story, to that man? Shelter, what else does it represent? Safety, okay? And it represents a safe place where healing can take place, where the, where the bandages can be taken off, where the wounds can be cleaned, where all the messy, dirty, stinky work of healing can take place. What does the inn represent to us? The church at its best. The church at its best is a place where broken, helpless, wounded people can come and find safety the church should be a place where we can do the dirty work of sanctification. The greatest tragedy of the Adventist church here in the West is our refusal to accept and acknowledge our brokenness. The greatest tragedy of our church today is our refusal to accept and acknowledge our brokenness. We come to church all dressed up, lacquered with the nice smile on our face, thinking that we have to be okay if we're at church. And the church does not become a safe place for broken people. Instead, it becomes a place for the pointing of the finger. But God's church is a place that is safe for healing and restoration. It's a place where I can show you my wounds and you can show me your wounds and we can be innkeepers for each other and help each other along the path of restoration. Which leads to question five. What does the innkeeper represent A in the story and B to us? A in the story, the innkeeper represents a person or community that helps facilitate the healing process. I mean, the innkeeper represents a person who helped facilitate the healing process for the man. And it represents to us people or a community who through the Holy Spirit help facilitate the process of healing. I can't heal you. Only the Holy Spirit can heal you. When Jesus left this earth, he said, I will leave you with another comforter. And the Holy Spirit is the one who does the work of redemption and sanctification. But the Holy Spirit wants to use us. What a privilege to facilitate that process in the lives of our fellow community. What this parable is saying to me, in verse 7 when it says, what are the implications? No, that, that's not it. I'll just tell you. What this parable is saying to me is this. I need you. And you need me. In my walk with God, I've come to this realization that Jesus doesn't call us to be disciples by ourselves. Jesus wants us to enter community. 
And I've come to the realization that I can only grow so far in my relationship with God by myself. And that's a hard realization. I want to do it all by myself. I don't want to do that. I don't want to invest in other people. That's too risky. But I've come to the realization that community is essential to spiritual growth. As I grew in my walk with God, I thought I had it all. I thought I had the formula. And then I came to a ceiling in my walk with God. And Jesus told me, enter community. Become vulnerable. Draw people close to you. And I bucked and bucked and I said, no, I can't do it. I don't want to do it. It's not about that, man. I don't want to do it. And when you stop growing, you start dying. Are you part of a community? Do you have an inner circle of fellow believers, of fellow disciples, who you can be yourself around? It's essential to spiritual growth. Okay, so question six is, what two promises does the Samaritan make to the innkeeper? What are the two promises? I will return and I will repay. Isn't that the promise that Jesus makes to us? I will come again and it will all be worth it when I come. I will return and I will repay. And I know I skipped a question about the innkeeper and that is, what kind of a relationship can we assume that the innkeeper had with the Samaritan for him to leave him with the money and say, I will return and repay? Trust. There had to be a relationship of trust. In other words, how did the Samaritan have to trust the innkeeper? What did the Samaritan have to trust about the innkeeper? One, that he would do what he said he would, that he would take care of him. And two, that he wouldn't charge him extra. And what did the, Samarit- what did the innkeeper have to trust about the Samaritan? that he was going to come back and that the investment would be worth it. When finally Jesus comes again, everything that we, that we poured out for the sake of the cause of God, when we finally get to heaven, we will say heaven is cheap enough. It's worth it. So the summary is one, Entry into biblical community is through the realization that I am the man on the road that needs to be picked up. That's the first realization. I am the man on the road. Two, we take the roles of donkeys and innkeepers. We cooperate with God in this process of saving others. So how do we play the role of donkeys? hey, uh, there's this thing happening in my church. There's this conference. It's called a, a GYC. I have an extra spot. You want to come drive 2,000 miles with me to Minneapolis? <laughs> yeah, I know it's 24 degrees, but, you know. God wants to partner with us in this process. In the book Christ's Object Lessons, in the chapter on the Good Samaritan, it says this. By cooperating with heavenly beings in their work on earth, we are preparing for their companionship in heaven. In cooperating with heavenly beings in their work on earth, we are preparing for, companion, for their companionship in heaven. Christ Object Lessons is the chapter on the Good Samaritan. I don't have the page number because I was reading it online and it didn't have it. So um, number three, the third part of this experience is that when we choose to cooperate with God, when we choose to allow Him to, to heal us, when we choose to enter a community, not only to receive the gift of healing, but to offer the gift of healing of others, when we choose to cooperate with heavenly beings in bringing people into the community of faith, it says that when we live like this, Jesus promises us that He will return and He will repay Number four is a question for you. Do you have a safe place where you are healing and growing under the loving care of an innkeeper? And are you interested in offering this gift to others? Let us pray. Precious Father in heaven, 
Lord, we are so grateful to you that you came to where we were, that you chose to take this journey, that you had compassion on us, and that, Jesus, you have come to save us. I pray, Lord, today that we will not resist the realization that we are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked, and in need of a Savior. Today, Jesus, again, we want to accept the gift of healing that you are offering to each and every one of us. Father, I want to pray for every young person in this room. I want to pray, Lord, that you will give them opportunities to enter communities of healing. I pray, Lord, that they will be challenged to go home, and if there is no community of healing, that you will give them the strength to create communities of healing. I pray, Father, that their schools can become inns where people can be healed, that their churches can become inns, that their homes can become inns where people can find the loving care of a Savior. Father, I pray that as we choose to offer this gift to others, that you will grant us the joy of the hope of the glory that is your soon return. Father, we look forward to that day with wonderful anticipation. We thank you for what you have done for us so far in this GYC experience. And I pray that you will continue to grant us a revelation of your character throughout the rest of this weekend. In the name of your precious Son, we pray. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at www.audioverse.org and at www.hopevideo.com.